Have you ever felt completely alone and forsaken? Have you ever felt like God was absent when you were going through some horrendous experience? Psalm 22 is a psalm of lament by a person who doesn't feel the presence of God in the midst of suffering, by someone who is afraid in the face of persecution by their enemies. It's a psalm written by King David, probably when he was going through some particularly challenging or difficult time. Although no incident that we have recorded in the life of David really accounts for all the content of this psalm, which suggests that something more is going on. As A. Benson points out, a commentator, he says, this is not a description of illness, but of an execution. David was once threatened with stoning in 1 Samuel chapter 30. But this is a very different scene, a very different description. So if the psalm doesn't relate to a particular incident in the life of David, where did these words come from? Well, I think the best explanation is the same explanation that Peter gives in Acts chapter 2 about another psalm of David. Peter says, Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. David was a prophet. And David wrote the words of Psalm 22 as a prophet, looking forward to the way in which the Messiah would suffer. And of course, we know that the words of Jesus spoken from the cross are the quotation from Psalm 22. He could have quoted from any part of scripture, so many passages he would have known, but he went to this psalm to describe his experience. In Matthew 27, verse 46, we read, about three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I believe this psalm is a lament written by David in his time and place, when he was facing a particularly challenging situation, where he felt God's absence. But rather than simply describing his experience in that moment, the Holy Spirit caused him to prophesy concerning Jesus. The Holy Spirit gave him this amazing insight into the experiences that Jesus would have. And I think this knowledge of all that the Messiah would go through would have encouraged David in the face of his own troubles, that if the Messiah must suffer like this, then God truly understands whatever David was going through. In the same way, the psalm gives us insight into the experience of Jesus and helps us to see that no matter what we might face on earth, no matter what challenges might come our way, even if we face the very prospect of death, Jesus has been there before us. He understands our weakness. Hebrews 4 reminds us, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathise with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we might receive mercy and grace to help in time of need. This psalm gives us the insight that Jesus truly understands whatever we are facing. It's also amazing that this psalm is the only part of the Bible which gives us an insight into the depths of the suffering of Jesus. When it comes to the crucifixion of Jesus, the gospel accounts leave quite a lot for us to imagine. There's a lot that isn't described. Crucifixion was a horrendous death, but the gospel accounts don't go into those details. 
In 2004, The Passion of the Christ was released, attempting to show on screen the physical horrors of the death of Jesus. But that's not what the Bible focuses on. The Bible doesn't focus on the physical horrors. The Bible, the only, this psalm is the only part of the Bible which touches on the horrors of Christ's death. And its focus is on the mental and spiritual anguish of Jesus as he was separated from God the Father. Last week in Psalm 20, we thought about the fact that God always answers the prayers of his King Jesus. We read about how in John 11, when uh, at, the, at the tomb of his friend Lazarus, Jesus prayed. And he said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. This idea of knowing that Jesus was always heard by the Father. He was always in that perfect relationship with the Father, where his prayers were always answered. But in this psalm, on the cross, Jesus felt separated. He felt that his prayers went unanswered. One awful experience for the Son of God. The Son of God who from eternity has existed in a loving relationship with the Father and the Holy Spirit. And suddenly he found himself abandoned, alone, that God was not answering his prayers. Why? Because he chose to bear our sin, to be made sin for us. In Psalm 22, we're given the privilege of seeing into the mind of Christ as he gives himself for us. These words were written a thousand years before Jesus' death, and yet the connection is obvious. David saw far beyond what he could comprehend or even begin to imagine, Through the Holy Spirit, he saw into the mind of Christ. And reflecting on this psalm helps us to appreciate the sacrifice of Jesus. All that it cost him to rescue us. But amazingly, and one of the reasons this psalm can't simply be David's experience, is as the psalm goes on, there's a change in the mood, a change in the the focus. What starts out as the seeming execution of the king turns to rejoicing. First in the congregation of God's people and then to the whole ends of the world. And here we see the wonderful gospel message. That Jesus suffered and died in the most awful of circumstances. But this brings joy to his people. This is what brings glory. And so I want to look at this psalm in two movements. First of all, the suffering of the cross. But then the glory of the cross. So first then, the suffering of the cross. In verses 1 to 21, the king prays in the context of intense suffering. We see themes being interwoven here. The king describes his suffering. The king cries out in prayer in the midst of his suffering. And the king speaks to the God about God's trustworthiness and faithfulness. We have a picture here who suffers intensely and yet never loses his faith. He remains constant. Any of us faced with such overwhelming sorrow and grief and trials, would struggle to believe God's goodness to us. But the man described in this psalm remains constant in his faith, even as he faces the most awful circumstances. And that's why this true person is not King David, but King Jesus, the Messiah, God's anointed, the chosen one. And Jesus on the cross, going through his own agony, quotes from verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me. Jesus experiences the rejection, the forsakenness of God the Father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far 
from saving me from the words of my groaning. O my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. There's a distance described here in these first couple of verses. A distance between Jesus and the Father on the cross. God does not seem to answer his cries for help. The God who never, ever forsakes his people. The God who is the very definition of faithfulness. His covenant love can never be broken. And yet, here on the cross, Jesus is forsaken. These words should move us deeply. Because why does this distance exist between God and Jesus, between the Father and Jesus? Because of us. Jesus is perfect in every way. He never sins. And yet the Bible tells us that God literally made him sin for our sake. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It was because of our sin, our disobedience, our rebellion, that Jesus was placed in this position of isolation and abandonment. Because God hates sin. God is holy in every way. Verse 3 of the psalm, Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. That holiness is the set-apartness of God, the difference between us and God. Our sin separates us from God. In the Garden of Eden, our first parents had enjoyed this closeness with God, but they disobeyed and were cast away, cast out of the Garden. And from that moment onwards, there was this constant barrier between us and God. But Jesus had never experienced that separation. He was the eternal Son of God, God is love, because in the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, there has always been love and always been this intimacy. But on the cross, Jesus became sin. He took our sin upon himself. He bore the wrath of God against sin. Jesus, who from all eternity has experienced the love and joy of the Father, now bore his anger at sin. The bowl of his wrath was poured out fully upon him. He experienced the separation we experience, not for his own sin, but for ours. Why? Because this was the only way that God could be both just and merciful. Justice for our sin meant that it had to be satisfied on the cross. There had to be a price paid. God could only show mercy through Jesus because of the death of Jesus. Salvation is a free gift of God for all who will receive it, who all will believe in Jesus. But we must never forget salvation was not free to Jesus. He paid for it with his life. And more than that, he experienced the mental and spiritual agony of the separation. We need to feel with full force what Jesus cried. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was enduring this for us. For his people. And after this agonised cry, the king then sings of God's trustworthiness from verses 3 to 5. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. The emphasis here is on how much God can be trusted. He will never forsake his people. Those who put their trust in God are always rescued. God is utterly faithful. 
No one who trusts in God will be put to public shame. And yet Jesus goes on to explain how he was shamed. But I am a worm and not a man. Scorned by mankind, despised by my people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me, they wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord, let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Jesus was shamed. People mocked him. They hurled insults at him. Of course, a thousand years after these words were written, we saw this come to pass in the gospel accounts. As Jesus was crucified, we read these words in Matthew. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests and the scribes and the elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Jesus is mocked because he trusts in God. People fulfilled literally the words written in the psalm as they attacked him, scorned him. Notice how the psalm uses poetic language to build this picture that he was scorned, despised, mocked, insulted. They shook their heads at him. You can imagine in the midst of all of this, Jesus asking, why am I the contradiction? Why, when God is always trustworthy, always faithful, always rescues his people, why am I here? Something very deep and strange is going on here, which only makes sense if Jesus is the object of this psalm. In a very human way, we see Jesus wrestling with the contradictions, wrestling with the paradox. In this place that God is faithful and rescues his people, but Jesus is condemned. Verses 9 to 11, he goes back to the faithfulness of God. You who took me from the womb, you made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Again and again in the psalm, Jesus returns to the the trustworthiness of God, the faithfulness of God. He demonstrates his faith in God, his faith in God's promises. But again, verse 11 highlights the distance between God that he currently feels. Trouble is near, but God is far. Then verses 12 to 18, we hear the horrors of the sufferings of Jesus. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Basham surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a raving and roaring lion. I'm poured out like water. My bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to my jaws and lays me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. Jesus is surrounded by wild beasts. He's desperately thirsty. Just as we know in John's Gospel, in John 19, Jesus was thirsty. His hands and his feet are pierced. 
His clothing is divided among his executioners. Again, the gospel accounts record this for us. We need to read these horrifying words slowly to feel the awfulness of what Jesus suffers. But we also shouldn't ignore the ways in which these words perfectly describe crucifixion. Years before it was practiced, pierced my hands and feet because this was all part of God's plan. Jesus is being torn apart and there is no one to help. Whatever King David may have experienced, the Psalms' word find their fulfillment in the cross of Christ. And in many ways, no historian's physical description of Roman crucifixion comes close to the power of the poetry in this psalm in helping us to feel the terror, to feel the agony and the shame that our king suffered for us. The first part of the psalm concludes with a fresh and urgent appeal for rescue. Verse 19, But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. So in verses 1 to 21 of this psalm, we feel the misery of Jesus as he offers himself to take away the sins of the world. We're moved to a fresh gratitude for all he endured in our place as our substitute, a sacrifice that we could never make ourselves. But thankfully, verse 21 is not the end of the psalm. There's more to come. And as we move beyond verse 21, we see a sudden change in the psalm. Suffering gives way to rejoicing, to glory. Rejoicing in response to the sacrifice of Jesus, which takes us to the glory of the cross. There's a complete change here in the emotional music, the language of the psalm. The king's power, uh, the king's prayer to be rescued in verse 21 is answered. But how this is possible is mind-blowing. The experience of the psalmist in verses 1 to 21 was certain death. How then can there be this change? I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All the offspring of Jacob, glorify him. And stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. We don't know what answer David experienced in his experiences, but we know that ultimately the answer Jesus experienced was the resurrection, raised from the dead, public vindication, ascension, exaltation, and now being seated at the right hand of the Father. One day every tongue will confess and every knee will bow. This is what J.R.R. Tolkien referred to as a eucatastrophe. This idea that the greatest form a story can take where there's a massive turn in fortunes, where things feel overwhelmingly negative, where victory looks impossible, and then suddenly everything changes. Catastrophe becomes rejoicing. The great evil or the misfortune is suddenly averted. Tolkien would further elaborate on eucatastrophes in one of his letters. He said, I coined the word eucatastrophe, the sudden happy turn in a story which pierces you with a joy that brings tears which I argued it is the highest function of the fairy stories to produce. And I was there led to the view that it produces its peculiar effect because it is a sudden glimpse of truth. Your whole nature chained in the material cause and effect, the chain of death, feels a sudden relief, as if a major limb out of joint had suddenly been snapped back. It perceives, if the story has literal truth, on the second plane, that there is indeed how things really do work 
in the great world for which our nature is made. And I concluded by saying, the resurrection was the greatest catastrophe possible in the greatest fairy story and produces this essential emotion, Christian joy, which produces tears because it is qualitatively so like sorrow, because it comes from those places where joy and sorrow are at one reconciled, as selfishness and altruism are lost in love. The one who was dead on the cross, the one who suffered all that we have described, rose again in the resurrection and declares, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. The book of Hebrews applies these words to Jesus, saying that he declared the righteous name of the Father to his church. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 2 that the Father whom he trusted proved utterly faithful to the end. The congregation is the church, God's people. We're to picture this great congregation gathered together as the now vindicated king stands to declare the name of Saviour God to them, ultimately to us. That name being the public revelation that this is the God who saves. He saved his king and we can be confident therefore that he will save us. This is what the death and resurrection of Jesus accomplished. That our sins could be forgiven, that we could too be raised. Death will not be the end of us. And then in verses 23 to 24, we, we read of what the vindicated king declares. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. And stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. He exhorts his people to praise and honour God, because he has not despised the affliction of the afflicted. He's proven himself worthy of the king's trust. The king was afflicted, he suffered terribly. In his suffering he cried out to God and God heard his cries. The vindication came by way of resurrection. But it's important to see something here in verse 24. That afflicted, he has not, he, he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. That word afflicted there is singular. Verse 24, there's a singular afflicted. But then verse 25 and 26 speak in the plural. And this reveals that verse 24 is speaking about the Messiah himself as the afflicted. But in verses 25 and 26, it is then God's people, us. From you comes my, great, my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. The idea here is that it's because Jesus was the afflicted that us who are afflicted, us who need to be satisfied, will eat and will be satisfied. And so it becomes God's people in verse 25 and 26 who are rejoicing because of what the singular Jesus did. God has proven himself faithful to King Jesus in his affliction so we can be confident he'll be faithful to us in our affliction. And in fact, the very death and resurrection of Jesus is what achieves our salvation. And so we picture the whole assembly, the worldwide Church of Christ, through all generations, joining with the King in heartfelt praise. What a chorus of adoration. <laughs> all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. And the prosperous of the earth shall eat and worship. 
Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who couldn't keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn. He has done it. We see here echoes of the rest of the Bible story. The covenant made with Abraham, that the whole world would be blessed through the Messiah. The promise of Sam too, that the king will rule over the whole world. The gospel of the rescue of the afflicted will spread to the ends of the earth. All families, all nations. It will go from the top, the prosperous, the rich of the earth, down to the very low, those who cannot keep themselves alive. All will come to worship our God. Every barrier that divides human beings will be broken down in Jesus. The psalm began with infinite suffering but ends with worldwide rejoicing. This is the vision of universal praise, worldwide worship of Christ. Joy, that this was the joy that was set before Jesus when he endured the cross. Jesus went through all of that suffering because of his great love for us. He was prepared to suffer and die that we might be rescued. That's the wonder of the gospel. Jesus suffered so that we can go free. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, you're invited to recognise this wonder of the gospel, to respond in faith, to trust Jesus for your salvation. Each one of us have sinned against this God. Each one of us deserves the punishment. Left to ourselves, we would be alone to be punished and die. But Jesus came and he paid this price for you if you'll place your faith in him. This psalm should lead us now to worship though as a foretaste of the worship we will offer in heaven, as part of this worldwide church of Jesus, all generations, all nations, joining together throughout history to worship the Lamb. It should encourage us of the responsibility on us now to pass on this great message of grace to our children, to the next generation. We are but one link in the chain, going back 2,000 years of people who have worshipped Jesus. And we call more people to join us in worship. John Piper, in his book on mission, Let the Nations Be Glad, says this. Mission is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Mission exists because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions. Because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. This vision of Piper's comes straight out of the psalm of the redeemed through all generations, all nations, all through history, worshipping Jesus because of his sufferings and rejoicing in his glory. Let's pray. Father God, we give you thanks for these words written in this psalm so many years ago. Words that give us insight into the mind of Christ, into all that he suffered for us. Allow us to scratch the surface of his suffering. We confess that we do not fully understand. We do not fully appreciate how it was possible for Christ, the God-man, to suffer and die. But we rejoice that you made a way for us to come to you. And so we pray, Lord, that we would be ever mindful of the great sacrifice of Jesus. We would be ever worshipping and that you would draw many more to worship with us. We pray for any who don't yet know you, that you would help them to see this gospel for themselves. And we give you thanks that we are part of this worldwide church. That there are people all across this world right now who worship you. That people all through history have worshipped you. And one day we will be with them all 
in your presence. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.